Matthew chapter 21 in your Bibles this morning. And uh, we're going to bring a message in line with the, the day. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the oddest Palm Sunday of my life. I am used to the church house, uh, the church building rather, being full uh, and overflowing the Sunday prior to Easter and then obviously Easter Sunday as well. And so to be here with just a handful of people is odd, uh, but um, we don't ever want this to get normal. I was talking to Pastor Morales a few minutes ago, and he says if we do this long enough, we'll become experts at putting on a TV production. We don't want to become experts at putting on a TV production. We're preachers, and so if this is a little off-kilter or isn't uh, just perfect, please understand we're preachers trying to do work that is beyond our pay grade, and so we're giving you the best we can. Matthew chapter 21, we'll read from verse 6 down through verse 11. The Bible says, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon, and a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitude that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. The title of my message this morning is this, His life or mine. Let's pray. Lord, words cannot begin to describe or sum up or explain, Lord, the great sacrifice you made on Calvary for us some 2,000 years ago. Lord, we cannot even begin to understand why you would die for us, why you would take our place and save our wretched souls. Lord, who are we? but a bunch of law-breaking, God-defying sinners. Somehow you looked down and saw the unlovable and you loved us anyway. You were willing to allow your Son to live on this sin-infested earth. And then you allowed these sin-infested people to take his life so that you could buy us back. Oh, what great sacrifice you made, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. How thankful we are. Lord, may the sermon today break down the one who is lost and in need of salvation. Lord, may it build up and encourage those that are saved to be even that much more thankful. Lord, for what you went through on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you look at the calendar... Um, I love how the atheists have to say it's the year 2020, and the year 2020 revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. They claim to deny Christ, and then they use a date that's defined by his very life. Jesus would have died in AD 33. 33 years was his age when they nailed him to the cross. And so if that is the case, then by that uh, calendar, it was 1,987 years ago give or take, uh, today when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Uh, He had already raised Lazarus from the dead. He was still on the outskirts of town, probably somewhere in the region of Bethany, which would have been a suburb-type town of Jerusalem. And he sent two of his disciples to take an ass and a colt, a donkey and a colt, uh, and bring them to him. And uh, when asked what they were doing, the disciples just said, the master hath need. And uh, they, they took those animals. And Jesus did not enter into Jerusalem on a stallion, but rather he came in on the back of a donkey. We celebrate today, and uh, as uh, the Catholic world would have described this, uh, this is the beginning of what many call Holy Week. Holy Week. Why? Because the events that take place between today and next Sunday uh, are some of the most famous events found in the life of Christ. Between now and even uh, on Wednesday, uh, we have the Last Supper, we have the arrest of Jesus, we have Peter's denial, we have uh, Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, we have Jesus being scourged, uh, beaten with a cat of nine tails, we have uh, him being mocked with a a crown of thorns, being uh, mashed down into uh, into his skin, 
uh, uh, pressing up against his skull and then putting a robe on his back and mocking him. We have the crucifixion of Jesus and all that took place with the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll look at here in a few minutes. And then three days later, on Easter Sunday morning, he arose from the dead. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate the greatest act ever performed by anyone who robed themselves in humanity. Jesus was killed, but then Jesus did what no other human has ever done. He rose up from the dead all by himself. A whole lot happened over a very short period of time. Uh, Jesus had spent three and a half long years walking up and down and going throughout Galilee and uh, in Jerusalem, in Israel, proclaiming the good news of, 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 of his own life and how folks could be saved. He had spent three and a half years preparing his disciples for three, for these events that were going to take place over the next seven days. Were they ready for them? Were his disciples ready for what was about to take place? And, uh, the short answer would be no, they were not. But they, these men, would would revolutionize the world. The, these events would be a watershed moment in their life. Uh, it would develop within them a strong passion and loyalty to the person of Christ. Every one of these men, with the exception of John, would go on uh, as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They would go on and become a martyr for the cause of Christ. What would drive these men to be so passionate? What would be the catalyst that would cause them to both live their lives out for Jesus and then allow them to die for Jesus? This week right here, this week right here from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday would validate everything that Jesus had taught them. You see, what makes the life of Jesus so interesting, what makes the life of Jesus so fascinating is not just that he walked around and taught uh, 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 and, and gave the theory of the Christian life, but that he actually went through with it, that he not only talked about bearing your cross, but then he went and bore his own cross. He not only talked about being a peacemaker, he went forth with dying on the cross to bring peace to each of us. Jesus did not just preach uh, uh, the Christian values and principles of, of loving the unlovable and, and, and serving the poor and uh, being there for the outcast and healing the hurting. Jesus went forth and did it. He taught a lesson that his walk backed up and validated. If you're listening in this morning, it is very likely that you know the story of Jesus. You know the story of his death on the cross. But do you know why it is that Jesus died on the cross? Do you know that his death involves you? You and I are a part of the reason why Jesus died. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. We go through life. We walk through culture. We see the cross as a piece of jewelry or wall art. Uh, we see it uh, as a religious symbol. And many folks fail to realize that the cross is not just something uh, that that is to be beholden and looked upon and seen as a cultural icon. No, the cross of Jesus Christ is meant personally for you. The cross of Jesus Christ happened because you and I are sinners. The simple truth is that God created mankind and womankind different than the animals. He gave each of us a free will to make moral choices. Animals cannot make moral choices, but humanity can. With the power of moral choice also comes the consequences when we choose to go against God and break His laws. God told, Abraham, or God told Adam and Eve rather that if they kept the law, that they would live in peace and splendor forever, heaven on earth. But if they broke His law, they would suffer death or separation. Not only for them, but they would bring these consequences. They would bring this 
death penalty. They would bring this pain. They would bring down God's wrath on their offspring as well. Here we stand millennia later. And you and I have the same free will Adam and Eve had. And just like Adam and Eve, we choose daily. We choose daily to break God's law. You're listening in this morning and you say, Pastor, I have no problem admitting that I'm a sinner. I have no problem looking at my lifestyle and seeing sin and destruction, destructive actions. I have addictions. I have uh, a temperament. I have an attitude. I have an anger problem. I, uh, I can see vices in my life. There's others of you here this morning that you don't focus on your sin. Rather, you focus in on your own righteousness. You see the good of your life. I had a couple of doctors one time sit in my office. They did free work for those uh, who were part of the Hispanic community. They were Caucasian doctors who would learn to speak Spanish, and they gave away thousands of dollars in free health care visits to those who were here illegally and those who could not afford uh, help. And uh, they sat in my office and wanted to use our church building to uh, teach people uh, English, people who spoke Spanish English. And I told them before they could use the building, I needed to talk to them about their eternal souls. And as we got into the gospel, as we got into the first point about them being sinners, uh, the husband stood up very indignantly and said, if God will not let me into heaven with all of the good that I do for the broken in society, if he won't let me into heaven, then he won't let anyone into heaven. And they stormed out. Why? Because they could not see their own sin because they were too focused on their own self-righteousness. You may be here this morning and you may feel like you're a pretty good person. And I would say you are a good person in comparison to others in jail or others in, in society that have made bad choices. But my friend, they're not the standard. God is the standard. God is perfect. He's holy. He's never done anything wrong. When I compare myself up to him, Boy, I fall quite short. When I measure myself against the standard of God's word, I see that I fall quite short. And my friend, so do you. The title of the sermon this morning is this, His Life for Mine. I should have died. I should have suffered hell for all of my immoral actions, for all of the times I have violated the law of God. But Jesus, Jesus suffered hell on the cross. Why? So that I could be set free. He suffered hell on the cross so that you could be set free. The story of the cross is powerful. But it is only powerful if you make it personal. If you do not make it personal, then you will miss the power of the cross. I propose that many people know in their head the story of Jesus and the cross. But many people have never experienced in their heart the salvation offered freely because of that death. If you have already placed your faith in Christ Jesus alone as your way to heaven, then let the message this morning wash you. Let the Word of God and the story refresh you. Let it bring about to you a, a, a greater appreciation for the salvation that you have. Uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through Matthew's account. Matthew shows us Jesus as King. We're going to go through Matthew's account and we're going to look at five different perspectives, five different groups of people and how they view Jesus these last days leading up to and through his death. The first group of people, uh, the first group we'll look at today are the people at large, the general population there in Jerusalem as Jesus rode in uh, to the city that Palm Sunday. Notice point number one, the people hailed him. The people hailed him. Look with me again at Matthew chapter 21 where we began this morning and read with me, if you will, verse 6 down through verse number 11. The Bible says, and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon and a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others covered 
cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. There's where we get the Palm Sunday idea. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Boy, I wish I could have been there that Sunday morning when Jesus came riding in on the back of a donkey. As I said in my introduction, he did not come in on the back of a stallion. He did not come in riding with confidence. He did not come in uh, uh, lording over and, 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 and looking to be a political king. No, he came in looking to be the Savior. He came in looking to be uh, the meek and kind and lowly servant. Jesus was a king wrapped in servanthood. He came in on the back of a donkey, but that did not prevent the people who his, who his life had touched from laying down their clothes in his path, from pulling out palm branches and waving them there that day and calling him Hosanna to the highest and praising him. And I can see the jubilation. I can see the great joy. I can see the, the excitement and the fun that was had that day as Jesus came riding into town. You know, my friend, the Lord Jesus wants you to praise him. He wants you to lift up his name and hail him. He wants you to hold him up high. He be, Why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy because he is the savior of the world. He is worthy because he is God robed in flesh. He is worthy because he spent 33 years and three and a half of them loving on the outcast and the down and out of society. My friend, have you hailed him recently? We go through life and we're down and out and uh, poochy lip disease can set in and we mope and complain about what we don't have. We mope and complain because we can't enjoy our favorite restaurants or our store that we want to go shop in is closed. And listen, there's a lot of sad sights to behold in our culture today. I was riding down Interstate 95 uh, just a couple of days ago and drove past uh, the, the mall there, the, the Connecticut Post Mall. Not a car in the parking lot. Uh, I'm used to seeing that maybe on a Christmas morning uh, where a store parking lot would be empty. I went to Walmart yesterday, and hopefully I didn't contract anything, but I went to Walmart yesterday, and to get into Walmart, I had to wait in a line that bent around the building. People were wearing masks. Uh, we must have waited 25 minutes uh, in that line to get in the building just to buy a handful of things. I walked over to the toilet paper aisle, and there was no toilet paper anywhere to be found, and uh, I've only been able to find one package of toilet paper since all of this began. I happened to be in a pharmacy at 11 o'clock at night and they wheeled out a couple of boxes and they opened up the boxes and 11 o'clock at night uh, the, those pa those packages of toilet paper never even made it on the shelf i grabbed one a couple of other people grabbed some and they were gone and uh, what do we see there's plenty we can focus on that will help us to complain there's plenty to focus on that will get us down but my friend when you put your eyes on Jesus, when you behold our King sitting on His throne next to God, the Father in heaven, what you, uh, what will happen is that the cares of this world will fade away. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We look at Jesus, and all of a sudden, all of the bad all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the uncertainty, all of the fear washes away. And like those people there that day, they could feel the tension in the town. They knew the religious elites hated Jesus. That did not keep them from gathering in the streets and praising Jesus for who he was. Have you been praising Jesus? Have you been thanking him? Boy, sometimes I look at my prayer closet. I look at my time. I spend in prayer and as a pastor when the burdens grow heavy and I know about hardships that people are carrying. I know about my own hardships that I'm carrying. If I'm not careful, I will complain even in the presence of God just a little too much. I'll uh, I, I do a little more supplicating and not enough praising. And my friend, make sure you take some time in the presence of God to just praise him for who he is. Hold his name up. Elevate him. Be like those people that day. Hail, King Jesus. Number two, let's look at the second group of people and notice their attitude toward Jesus. Notice number two, the Pharisees hated him. 
the Pharisees hated him. And to be fair, Jesus hated the heart of the Pharisees. He hated the actions, the attitudes of the Pharisees. Look back with me at Matthew chapter 21 and look at verse number 12. The Bible says, and Jesus went into the temple of God. So he's just arrived there in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, He's been hailed by the people. The palm branches have been waved and the people have sung and praised his name. And he gets off that uh, that ass, that donkey, and he walks into the temple uh, and and, and right on the heels of being praised, what does he do? He goes straight at the Pharisees. Again, verse 12, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves and the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye not read? Here's a quote from Psalm chapter 8. Out of the mouths, mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou perfected Praise. Wow. Jesus steps right out of being hailed right into the presence of Pharisees that hated him. What did he do? He, he took the time to put together a whip. I'm sure it was very similar to a whip that would be used to beat him just a, a few days later. He goes through and he finds where they're making money. They have turned the temple sacrifices into an opportunity to get rich. They've taken, he took that whip and he flipped over their tables of where the money was exchanged. People would come in from out of town. And there was a currency exchange set up right there in the temple. He, Jesus must have thought back to the day Solomon dedicated the temple. Back in Second Chronicles 5, 6, and 7, we find the account of Solomon dedicating the temple in a long prayer he prays of dedication, the, the sweet savor of those sacrifices that went up that day. And he thought about how Solomon had dedicated that as a house of prayer. He had dedicated it through prayer. And here these men were getting rich off some scheme of overselling uh, scrawny animals to be offered up on that altar there in that building, there in that temple. And Jesus said this was meant to be a house of prayer not a place for you to get rich. There Jesus was, walking back out into the courtyard, and the blind and the lame come to him. You have the pharisaical elite on one hand, who Jesus can't stand, who hate him, and Jesus cannot stand the hypocrisy in their heart. And then you have those who are the outcasts of society that run to Jesus, and Jesus takes these vulnerable and he heals them. And then some children come running up to him. No doubt these children had been in the street just a few moments before, maybe waving the palm branches and throwing their own coats down, much to their mother's dismay, throwing their coats down in front of Jesus, saying, All hail, King Jesus, Hosanna to the highest. And they're still dancing around in Jubilee, and they run into the presence of Jesus, continuing to praise him. You can see the Pharisees standing in the corner with their arms crossed and a scowl on their face saying, Do you not hear what? these children say and jesus turns to them and he says out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou perfected praise turn with me over to matthew chapter 23 and look at verse number two and here we see jesus uh, this must have been a monday maybe a tuesday but jesus is going to go right at the spiritual throat of the pharisees he's going to expose the pharisees to the masses for the hypocrisy in their heart. Can I say today that uh, Pharisaicalism is still alive and well in religion today? There are still people who are Pharisees in their heart. And God hates uh, Pharisaicalism. He hates hypocrisy. Look at verse 2. Jesus is speaking here, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So we see they're elevated. They're elevated above the people. They're elevated to a place of religious prominence. Their opinion is held high. They are to be uh, the leaders of the people the way Moses was the spiritual leader of the people. Skip down to verse number 5. But all their works, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus speaking here, they do for to be seen of men. 
Notice he goes at their motive. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feast and the cheap seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Jesus goes on to say, hey, don't be careful when you give titles to people. Skip down to verse number 12. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Jesus was saying here, you, you Pharisees, you have put in a system of religion that is devoid of relationship. And you are yourselves, you are not going to heaven because you worship religion instead of uh, God and his plan for salvation. And you are leading the masses into the same hell that you're going into uh, also. The world today is filled with religion. The world today is filled with those who uh, uh, hold to some uh, uh, religious system. My friend, God does not care about a religious system. What he cares is that you have a relationship with him. That relationship only comes when you set aside some game of pretend and you cling to what Jesus did for you on the cross. It will be a happy day. It will be a happy day when you quit playing games with people and trying to get them to believe you're something you're not. Be a happy day when you let down your guard, not only with others, but with God himself. You know, there's a lot of people who are too proud to even confess their sins to God. They're too proud to be honest with God. One of the healthiest things I do when I pray is say out loud to God, in descriptive terms, the sins that I have committed. You know how awful I feel when I do that? You know how filthy I feel when I say out loud to God my sin? Why would you try to hide your sin from a God who sees the very thoughts you think, who is everywhere at all times? These Pharisees were playing pretend. With religion. Look down at verse 25 of Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness, even so ye are outwardly, uh, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The Pharisees hated Jesus because Jesus was exposing them for who they were. Boy, they had a religious system in place they were getting rich off of. They had a a religious system in place where they were developing and building a name of prominence. They had fame. They had fortune through the avenue of religion, and Jesus looked at them and he called them, called it extortion. He called it extortion. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus? Because Jesus called a spade a spade. Jesus was not afraid to identify who they were. If you've listened to me preach much, if you've been a member at White Oak Baptist Church through the tenure of my pastorate, you've heard me say this many times before. Uh, this is a passionate uh, topic of mine and something that needs to be passionately re- repeated. There are those that want Pastor Lejeune to be a, a more hard-hitting preacher. They want me to beat the pulpit just a little bit more. They want me to get red under the collar and uh, mean and nasty just a little bit more often. And my friend, if you study the life of Jesus, what you find is Jesus was only really harsh to two groups of people. Those who took advantage of children and those who were Pharisees. If you are a Pharisee, you need me to preach a harsh and hard sermon to you. And where I am a Pharisee, I need to preach a harsh and hard sermon to myself. But Jesus did not preach harsh and hard sermons to the lame and the blind and the sick and the outcast. No, my friend, Jesus extended an arm of compassion. Pharisees 
hated him. What would ultimately lead to the death of Jesus on the cross? The fact that the Pharisees envied what Jesus had. You see, what they never really could earn, what they never really could earn through their Ponzi scheme, Jesus earned by being a true person. Jesus loved the, the, the weak, and the weak came to him. The masses grew. They could not have the fame Jesus had because they were phonies and fakes. Number one, the people hailed him. The second perspective we saw today was, number two, the Pharisees hated him. How about his own disciples? Notice number three, the disciples hid from him. The disciples hid from him. Go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read uh, several verses here. And uh, I, I don't have a problem reading quite a bit of Scripture in the sermon this morning because much of the Scripture tells a story. And so follow along and put, try to uh, uh, put yourself there. Use your imagination to put yourself uh, uh, there uh, at that time. And here we find Jesus. He has left nine or rather eight of the disciples at the base of the mountain. Here Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John uh, up to the top of that hill there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here Jesus is... Uh, uh, off by himself praying, and Judas is going to come, and he is going uh, to betray Jesus. He's going to kiss him on the cheek, and because of that, the Roman guards are going to arrest him. Look at verse 47 of Matthew 26. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss... That same as he, hold him fast. Now, the reason why Judas kissed Jesus is that was their formal greeting back then, much like a handshake would have been the formal greeting of today, uh, or at least used to have been the formal greeting. Uh, 49, and forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Th- then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Behold, one of them which were with Jesus, this is Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions or twelve thousands of angels. Uh, but how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that the, that thus it must be? In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitude, are ye come out as against a, a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and ye laid no hold on me. Look at 56, look at 56. But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. All the disciples, all the disciples forsook him and fled. The disciples hid. Why? Because they didn't want to face the same persecution that Jesus was about to face. I wish I could say that if I had been a follower of Jesus back then, that I would have been glued to his side and ready to go to death with him. Peter thought that. Peter said, Jesus, I'll die with you. Jesus said, no, Peter, you won't. At least not yet. In fact, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning. He said, Peter, you're not ready quite yet. You know, I look as hardships come into the life of Christians. I know I've experienced my share of hardships, and you've experienced your share of hardships. I, I don't want to hold my hardships up against yours and try to compare them because everyone walks a different path. Everybody goes through different things. And uh, I spoke with uh, someone on the phone this week who was going through a hard time and having a, a really tough day. And one of the things I encouraged that person with was, as bad as you might have it right now, there are others who have it worse. And it's always good to try to find someone who has it worse than you do. It's always a good idea to try to love on others, uh, or rather be understanding that uh, you could have circumstances that are worse. But you know what I found that a lot of times happens? When hardships come into the life of the lost, 
they run to church. When hardships come into the life of the saved, oftentimes they run from church. Why is that? Why is that? Now, I know our schedules have all been thrown up in the air the last couple of weeks. I know that things have been different. We have been complaining for years that we don't have time to walk with God. We're on the hamster wheel, up early, out the door to work, run, 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 go, go, go. We suck down coffee in order to give us the caffeine we need just to have the energy to barely make it through. We eat fast food. We might eat a meal with our family in the evening sometimes, maybe, maybe not. And it's go, go, go. And we open our Bible to read it in the evening. And the next thing you know, we're, we're asleep or nodding off while we're trying to read our Bible and pray. And now we have all of this extra time. Christian, now that you have all this extra time, have you devoted it to reading your Bible more? Have you devoted it to memorizing Scripture? Have you devoted that time to pray? Has it become evident to you that you just really don't even know how to pray? You see, prayer happens through practice. We must pray in order to get better at communicating with our God. I remember as a young man, I, uh, I uh, heard a sermon on prayer. I was probably seven, eight years old. I heard this really powerful sermon on prayer, and I thought, man, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to pray for an hour. And I remember I got down on my knees in my bedroom. I was just a little guy, and I prayed for everything I could think of. And I looked at the clock, and I had prayed for three minutes. So much for praying for an hour. I remember getting off my knees thinking, I can barely pray three minutes. How am I ever going to actually have that sweet hour of prayer that we sing about in church? And that may be where you're at today. You may not know how to pray a long time. Isn't that a sign that we have some growing in Christ to do? Isn't that a sign that we uh, are a people that are truly away from God? Isn't that a sign that maybe we have been spending a little bit of time hiding from God when things get tough? That's what the disciples did. They were afraid of persecution. Now, um, Christian, there's going to come a day where the state's going to come down on us hard, not for health care reasons, but because they hate Christ. I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime or not. But if you study the course of history, that day will come. Are you willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Boy, the disciples. They said they'd stand for Christ. But when the, the police of their day showed up, boy, they scattered. The people hailed him. The Pharisees hated him. The disciples hid from him. Number four, Notice Satan hurt him. Satan hurt him. Way back when in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve committed the first sins and placed all of us under the sin curse, God told the serpent as part of his uh, punishment, speaking to the, both the serpent and to Satan, he said that, uh, you, that, that the serpent would bruise the heel of Eve's seed, but that Eve's seed, speaking of Jesus, would then turn around and bruise his head. Genesis 3.15 says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. How would Satan bruise Jesus' heel? If you're listening in this morning, I'm sure you know that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. We have, heard, we have heard this so much that it begins to carry little emotional meaning these days. I say to you this morning, Jesus died on a cross. And you think, okay, I've heard that thousands of times in my life. Maybe hundreds of times in my life. At the least, we're reminded of it daily by just going about our way and seeing crosses. And when we see that cross, there is that subtle reminder that Jesus died on the cross. And it can get to a place where it comes in one ear and it goes out the other. It loses its value and its meaning. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus suffered far more than most take the time to ever even realize. He suffered. 
And I would just remind you back to Matthew 26, where we read a few minutes ago, where Jesus was arrested, and he looked at his disciple, Peter, and he said, Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels to stop this right now if that's what I really wanted to do? Jesus said to Peter, I'm doing this voluntarily. He let Satan hurt him. Why? Why would God wrap himself in flesh, become a man, and allow his most diabolical enemy, Satan, why would he sign up to be voluntarily hurt by him? Well, I seek to answer that question in just a moment. Let's read the account, if we can, of how Jesus was hurt by Satan. Look with me at Matthew 26, in verse number 65. The Bible says, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, and they're in the middle of a mock trial, uh, a, a trial by night, under the cloak of night, uh, of trying to find something worthy of crucifying Jesus. And so here he is uh, uh, in this room, and people are coming and accusing him and uh, making accusations, and they're having a hard time even getting two people's uh, account of, of a supposed crime Jesus committed uh, to line up. And so, um, again, verse 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Listen, look here. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? Well, they put a bag over his head. They punched him in the face. They pulled his beard out, and they spit on him. Well, this was uh, hurtful, but this was more uh, humiliating than painful. Boy, the real pain is coming. Turn over with me to chapter 27 and verse number 26. Chapter 27 and verse number 26. We're going to read all the way down to verse 50. Stay engaged with me here. The Bible says, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldier of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him uh, the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Verse 29, And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him and took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him and as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, and another on the left. And they that passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now, from the sixth hour, 
there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let, it, let, let be, let us see whether Elias will come down to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. What happened to Jesus that day? He was arrested. He didn't deserve it. The accusation leveled, levied against him was that he claimed to be God. Falsely. Well, he was God. They, uh, they pull his beard out of his face. They spit on him. In the morning they took him and brought him to Pilate, the political leader of that region who had the power to order his execution. Pilate listened to the accusation and said, Guys, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see any wrong in this man. But Pilate did what many politicians do. Pilate caved to political pressure. He ordered Jesus to be scourged. What does that mean? Well, other accounts in the gospel, we find that they took nine whips. At the end of those whips, they brought them into one handle. They tied Jesus to a post. They hit him with that whip. They pulled the skin off his body. They left him bleeding. We don't really know how many times they hit him because he was not a Roman citizen. There was no limit on how many times he could be beaten. Jesus suffered. At any moment he could have stopped it. They took him and they put a crown on his head, but not a crown of royalty, a crown of thorns. They mashed that crown down with a reed, a, a stick, into his skull, and blood went gushing down his face. They laid the cross beam on him and led him through the streets of Jerusalem. Boy, I imagine, as fickle as people are, some of the folks who hailed him on Sunday, Palm Sunday, now turned around and scoffed at him. Boy, I imagine there were bottles thrown at Jesus as he walked by. Insults were hurled. People spit at him as he walked by. They, they threw rocks and stones at him. And while Jesus was God, he was also man. He crumbled under the weight of the cross. Some man named Simon was yanked out of the crowd at random and had to help Jesus carry that cross the rest of the way to Calvary. My friend, Jesus didn't fight the process. When they went to run the railroad-sized spikes through his hands and his feet, he didn't battle with them. He willingly laid them there. He was raised in the air between God and man. And the Bible says that darkness covered the earth. Why did darkness cover the earth? Because God the Father turned His back on God the Son. What did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus suffer? Because Jesus was enduring the wrath God feels toward my sin and toward your sin. And when God converted Jesus into the sin of the world, 
the sight of Jesus was so repulsive to a holy God that he even turned his back on his son. And that's why Jesus cried out to his father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Boy, Jesus was being hurt by Satan. Jesus endured that for you and I. We've looked at how the people held him. We've discussed how the Pharisees hated him. We saw how that his closest confidants, his disciples, hid from him. We've watched how Satan has hurt him. Let's finish this morning and notice how that sinners are healed by him. If you have your Bible there, the verses will be up on your screen either way. Romans chapter 5. You read this account of Jesus suffering and you step back and go, "What? why? Why would God allow himself to be hurt? I, I've met my share of people. They, they are convinced that the only way for them to get to heaven is by being a good person and, and, and living a moral life and taking care of their neighbor and Boy, they elevate the second commandment to the first commandment. They don't love God with all their heart. No, they love their neighbor. And listen, it's great that you love your neighbor, but you're to love your neighbor behind loving God. You're to love your neighbor behind the commandment of Christ. The commandment of Christ is to love him first and then to love others because he has so loved you. And they think that somehow they're righteous and they're going to get to heaven. And I would just ask this, if being righteous, if being good, if following some moral code, got you and I into heaven, then why would Jesus allow Satan to hurt him on the cross? You and I cannot get into heaven because deep down we are not righteous. We're ungodly. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, and this breaks down why Jesus died. The Bible says, And hope maketh not a shame, beginning in verse 5, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, before I continue the reading, can I ask you a favor? Especially if you've never made the cross personal. Can I ask you a favor? Will you just be honest with yourself for, for a moment? Will you stop playing pretend that you're a good person? I doubt too many people watching this could come up with a list of good behavior that would outdo myself or our other associate pastor here. We have given our life to church ministry. Hardly a week goes by where we're not visiting a hospital or calling someone who is weak or making a grocery run for someone who can't, uh, where we're not helping uh, uh, lift up someone's spirits, where we're not praying with someone who's down, uh, where we're not encouraging someone, where we're not being benevolent uh, to someone who is hurting. Uh, there are people out there who could come up with a longer list of good behavior than ours, but the average person would not. Can I look at you straight in the eye this morning through this camera screen and tell you this? I am ungodly. I am a sinner. I deserve hell because I have broken God's law. And my friend, you are no different. And until you humble your heart, until you see yourself not as you, not as uh, uh, someone else would see you, until you see yourself as a holy God sees you, you have no chance of the cross meaning anything for you. You, my friend, are as ungodly as I am because you have broken God's laws just as I have. Look back at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet preadventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God proved, God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be rescued. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Before Jesus stepped into the picture, 
All you could be with God was an enemy. Why? Because God hates your sin. And your sin causes you to hate God. But Jesus steps in the middle. And Jesus suffered for your sin and my sin. And because of that suffering, you and I can be reconciled to God and be given a home in heaven. I finish my message with this story. And the story here that I will tell you is exactly what you must do to be saved. Listen closely. Henry Morehouse, during his first visit to America, uh, doing evangelistic work, was the guest of a cultured and wealthy gentleman. This wealthy gentleman had a daughter who was just coming into womanhood. And she was looking forward with bright anticipation uh, to entering a, a world of, of elitism, if you will. One day she entered the library and found the evangelist reading his Bible. Begging his pardon for the intrusion, she was about to retire to her bed to sleep when, she, when he looked up and called her name uh, and said to her in a quiet and kindly way, he asked her this question, Are you saved, young lady? She could only reply, no, Mr. Morehouse, I am not. Then came another question. Would you like to be saved? She thought for a moment of all that it meant, all that is meant by salvation, and of all that is meant by the lack of salvation. And she frankly answered, yes, I wish I could say I was a sincere Christian. Then came the evangelist's tender appeal. Would you like to be saved right now? The young lady stood there for a moment. Under this searching question, her head dropped. She began to look into her heart. On the one hand, her youth, her brilliant prospects, her father's wealth, her position in a ruling class society. That made the world attractive. On the other hand stood Christ. After a moment, she replied, yes. I want to be saved right now. The supreme moment in her life was reached. Mr. Morehouse asked her to kneel beside him and to read aloud the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This she did in a tone that became tremulous and broken by sobs. Read it again, said Mr. Morehouse gently. And where you find we, our, and us put in I, my, and me, the weeping girl, read the 53rd Psalm again. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And I hid, as it were, my face from him. He was despised and I esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. Yet I did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Here she broke down completely as she thought for the first time of her personal relation to the Lord Jesus and his sufferings. But wiping away her blinding tears, she read on, He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. And with his stripes I am healed. I like a sheep have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. The Lord hath laid on him all my iniquities. She was silent for a moment and then exclaimed with deep emotion, Oh, Mr. Morehouse, is this true? Dear child, he answered, does not God say it? Again, she was silent for a time, but at length looking up, no longer through the tears of sorrow, but in joy, adoring gratitude and inexpressible love, she said, Then I am saved, for all my iniquities have been laid upon him, and no stroke remains for me. She arose from her knees with the peace of God, filling her heart and soul. My friend, you must come to Christ the way this young lady came to Christ. You must understand that He laid down His life for you. 
and you alone must believe in Jesus as your ticket into heaven. Will you call on Him today? Will you receive Him? If you could, right there where you are in your living room, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? I'd like to help you. I'd like to help you pray. I'd like to help you call on the name of Jesus. Right there where you are, will you just pray this simple prayer of faith and place your faith in Jesus as your only way to heaven? Will you say this? Repeat this prayer in your heart after me. Maybe even pray aloud right where you are. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have broken your laws. And I know I'm deserving of sin's punishment in hell. Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I know you died in my place. I place my heart faith in you and you alone is my way to heaven. Lord Jesus, come in my heart and save my soul. Take me to heaven when I die. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the dead and living for me. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name.